Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Sherry. Uh, well, it is a blessing to be able to share with you this morning. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I know I was wearing a mask earlier and others were. So thank you all for being willing to, those who have been able to. I told someone today that I just wear it to cover up the ugliness. But when I get up to preach, I got to take it off. So you all just have to deal with it. So it is nice to be able to gather together. Um, and I know that God's going to do some great things. Last week, I shared with you about the first great awakening, a great spiritual revival that lasted from 1734 to 1743. And it began in Jonathan Edwards Church in Massachusetts, but it eventually would spread throughout basically the colonized Americas. Uh, that revival was aided by the preaching of George Whitfield who began preaching in 1739, so right in the middle of it, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is estimated that about 80% of America's 900,000 colonists personally heard George Whitfield preach over his ministry. Can you imagine that? He personally preached to 80% of the people that had colonized the Americas. That is incredible. But there were other great revivals that took place. Perhaps the, most, the next most significant revival would become known as the Second Great Awakening. And this would become known as the birth of the evangelical movement. This revival began around 1800, and it lasted until the mid-1800s. So this was a relatively long period of time. Initially, the great move of God started within a group of of Presbyterians and Methodists. And in case you didn't know, the Wesleyan Church actually was birthed out of the Methodist Church. So this is actually a part of our history. It enveloped much of Kentucky and Tennessee, but again, it would spread like wildfire across the United States and then even into Europe. In this case, it would primarily be led out of camp meeting revivals that would last for weeks and sometimes months at a time. Reflecting on the continual nature of these revivals, Reverend Gardner Spring reported that for the next 25 years, not a single month passed without news of a revival somewhere. And right in the middle of it, in 1824, Charles Finney began his preaching. And over the course of his preaching career, he would preach to millions with over 500,000 converts to Christianity. In fact, it is said that just in 1831 alone, more than 100,000 people were converted to Christ through Finney's preaching in just one city, Rochester, New York. I don't know about you, but that's pretty incredible. 100,000 people in one city surrendering their lives to Christ. Other great revivals were spurred on by powerful preaching by individuals like D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, and Billy Graham. D.L. Moody's preaching would reach millions with hundreds of thousands converting to Christ. Billy Sunday preached to more than 100 million people with more than a million conversions. And Billy Graham, of course, we're all very familiar with his ministry. He would preach to more than 
180 million people, not including the millions more who would watch him on television and different forms of media. The point of all this is to say that one of the keys to great revival is the clear presentation of the word of God with sound biblical teaching and an eagerness among God's people to know and to live out the truth. Our key verse is found in 2 Chronicles 7:14 which I had Colby read to you earlier and it declares if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Last week we talked about the role of prayer in revivals. And today, I want us to see what happens when we genuinely seek his face. So I want to start with a simple question this morning. What does it mean to seek the face of God? The truth is that most of us have sought God often, yet few of us have actually sought his face. Instead, we often seek his hand. We pray for physical needs to be met, for financial needs to be met, for God to get us out of our man-made messes, or for clear direction regarding certain events that are going on in our lives. And it's not a bad thing for us to seek God's hand. The scripture tells us very clearly that if we have a need, then we ought to bring it before the Lord. We're told that at times, we have not because we ask not. You've probably all heard the phrase, when all else fails, try God. That's a wise thought within a very foolish mindset. It's good for us to seek God's help, but you don't want to seek him as a last resort. Why would you wait until you've experienced multiple failures and there's no other way out, and now you decide, okay, now let's ask God for help? That's dumb. Seek the Lord's help first. But in each of these things, we're not seeking the face of God. We're seeking the hand of God. We're seeking God for what he can do for us, for what he can give us. Again, it's not a bad thing, but it's also not what we're called to do in 2 Chronicles 7.14. We are to seek the face of God. So what does that mean? Consider a few scriptures that address how we seek God. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, we read, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And in Proverbs 8, 17, we are told by God that I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. And Jeremiah 29, 13, which many of you have heard, echoes these two verses declaring that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So the call is clear that we are to seek the Lord and when we do it with our whole self, then we will find him. It's not as if God is playing a game of hide and seek with us. He actually wants us to find him. 
In fact, that's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, that we are to ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. It doesn't sound like he's hiding from us. But what happens often is that we do the first part of what Jesus said there in Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. So we do that part of it. That's seeking the hand of God. But we do not go that extra step. We ask regarding the need, but we do not seek his face. I've asked it. This is the third time. So what does it mean to seek the face of God? It means to get to know him, to know his heart and his love. It's like the father who continually provides for the financial needs of his family. You're grateful for his devotion, but every godly father longs to do more than just meet monetary needs. He wants his children to know him, to know what he loves, and to love him in return. In essence, he doesn't just want to be the hand that feeds them. He wants to be the heart that helps to shape them. And that's what God longs to do with us. He wants us to know him fully, not just for what he can give us, but for who he is. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 105, 4, Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. And I love the way the New Living Translation translates Psalm 27, 27, verse 8. It says, my heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. It gives the image of a God who longs to simply love on his children. And surely that would describe our God. Well, there are two primary places that the face of God or the heart of God is revealed. The first is through the word of God. Now, this is something that sometimes will get tuned out a little bit because you've heard the pastor say it so many times. However, we need to understand that the word of God is more than a historical record, but rather it is a revelation of God's love for us. That means that we need to get into the word on a regular basis. That needs to become a part of who we are. David declared, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That means that he, he hid the word. It was actually a part of him. It became a part of his mindset. He studied it. He applied it to his life. And surely there were times that David experienced failure, but it was the word of God that had been hidden within his heart that enabled him to truly understand God's love and grace for him. And the same should be true for you and for me. So let me begin here this morning. The first point that I have for you, it's not in your notes, but if you want to genuinely experience revival, then you need to dig deeper into the word of God. We need to stop depending on someone else to spoon feed us from the pulpit. It needs to become a priority to us. As within the word, we see the heart of God revealed. It shows us that at the beginning of humanity, we had fellowship with God. Remember, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And it shows us that in eternity, we will again find perfect fellowship, enjoying his presence forever. And in between those two extremes, from the beginning to the end, we see that God longs to simply be with his creation, you and me. So get to know his word. It says much about your value and your purpose as it reveals how great God's love is for you. And one of the coolest parts of getting into the word is that it somehow always seems to connect with whatever it is that you are going through right now. Now, I know you could probably find some obscure verse that seems to have nothing to do with what you're going through today, but generally, it will connect with where you are at today. That's why we call it the living word of God, written thousands of years ago, yet somehow very applicable to where you are in this very moment. The other part of this specifically related to revival, is that we see that the proclamation of the word was a common thread through each of the revivals I've mentioned. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, and Billy Graham earlier. Collectively, they were faithful in proclaiming the word to millions and millions of people. And the result was that the world was changed. But please note that they didn't just wow the people with their charisma. They didn't just give the people what they wanted. They gave them what they needed from the word of God. I remember while living in the Philadelphia area, there was a local doctor who made his way into the news for all the wrong reasons. Working with those coming out of addiction, I knew of him already. He was often referred to by his patients as Dr. Feelgood, although that wasn't his real name. People often in the depths of their addiction knew that he was very generous at renewing a prescription. So what started out as genuine help to relieve the pain of others would often turn into a full-blown addiction to pain medication. All the patient had to do was to tell the doctor that they wanted more medication, and he would write them a prescription. Well, he was eventually shut down. He lost his license to practice medicine, and it was all because he gave the people what they wanted instead of giving them what they needed. The same thing happens with ministers of the gospel. Those who are called to proclaim the word. Far too many are giving the people what they want rather than what they need. This is the fulfillment of what Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There are all kinds of preachers today that will do just that. Too many people no longer want to hear the truth. They just want something that will make them feel good. Now, I will tell you, I try very hard to avoid mentioning the names of such preachers. There are two primary reasons for that. 
On the one hand, I don't want to feed their notoriety. It's kind of like Fox News constantly reporting on what CNN is doing. If they'd stop talking about CNN, CNN might just go away. So I don't want to draw attention to these specific preachers. But the other side of this is that I would rather fix my eyes on what is true and right rather than on what other people are doing that is wrong. Yes, it's good to be aware of the heresies that are out there so that we can avoid them. And even this week, I had somebody ask me about one such preacher, and it was good that I was able to describe what was heretical about his teaching. But my first job is not to point you away from these celebrity preachers. My job is to point you to Jesus Christ and his word. Listen to the first two verses of 2 Timothy 4. Just before the two verses that I read to you a moment ago, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. My job is to preach the word. And what message am I to preach? I recently heard that among the mid-1800s camp meeting revivals, the second great awakening that we talked about at the beginning today, there were four primary messages that were present in each one of those camp meetings. The one was, Jesus is the only one who can save. That means there is nobody else who can save. You can do a whole lot of good, but your goodness will never save you. And there may be other religious groups out there that accomplish good things, but Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you from your sins. He is the only one who has paid the price, and he is the only one who will stand in judgment over us. Jesus is the only one, this is the second one, who can sanctify. That means you've already been set apart by God. You have already been saved by him. But this is what we as Wesleyans refer to as the second work of grace. This is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It is God transforming your life and allowing you to be made completely new. Not just saying I'm saved, but being transformed by the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Jesus is the only one who saves. Jesus is the only one who sanctifies. Jesus is also the one who heals. That is the third one. There were so many people that knew that if God is truly all-powerful, that means that my ailments, my sickness, is not beyond his ability to change. How many of us still believe that God is able to heal? How many of us still believe today that regardless of what we face, that our God is bigger than what we face? I believe today he is. I have experienced it firsthand. The fourth thing that was present in all of those camp meetings, and I realize we're talking about the mid-1800s, so 150 plus years ago. But the fourth thing was this. Jesus is coming back. 
As they gathered together, they knew that he could save them. They knew that he could sanctify. They knew that he could heal them of whatever ailments they had. But more than that, they knew that one day he would return. Well, if they were preaching that 150 plus years ago, isn't it even more so true today? To know that we are closer to the judgment of God than ever before, I believe today that his judgment is still coming. You heard me preach on it just a few weeks ago. Well, all of these things are just as true today as they were in the 1800s. In fact, it goes back further than the 1800s. Consider that even in biblical revivals, there is a constant presence of teaching that is similar to this. For example, on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, Peter proclaimed Christ Jesus as the Savior and Sanctifier. And weaved within everything he said, we see the idea that only repentance and turning to Jesus could truly make things right. In Acts 5, verse 17 to 21, we read this. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. So they've been arrested, and the angel of the Lord basically organizes a prison break. Surely they would run for their lives at this moment. They knew that there was a chance that they could be killed, but they don't. In fact, at daybreak, they're out in the open again, still preaching the truth. And as such, they are arrested again. And I love Peter's response when they start to threaten him about not rocking the boat. Skip down to verse 27 for a minute. In that same passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching." And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. What Peter is doing here is he is preaching Christ Jesus crucified. Christ Jesus raised from the dead. He is preaching salvation and forgiveness of sins. And even the giving of the Holy Spirit to those who turn to Christ Jesus. Now, I will say that this message was not well received on that day. If we were to continue to read in this passage, we'd see that they wanted to kill Peter and the other disciples. I mean, think about it. They've already arrested him now twice. 
And now they want to have him killed. But God would provide. An incredible revival would flow out of this. Again, they preach Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. And because of that, God would begin to send revival. So let me close with a thought. You guys don't get too excited because when the pastor says, let me close, it doesn't mean he's at the end. It just means he's going to the last point. Let me close with a thought. We have no greater responsibility than to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that we preach Christ crucified and we can do nothing less. Now, let me just say, everything you've heard today, and it sounds like the responsibility is more about falling on the preacher. Like this is all about what Pastor Mike should be doing or what other ministers of the gospel should be doing. We preach Christ crucified, but guess what? This applies to you as well. I remember I was a brand new pastor at my church in Pennsylvania, and I was asked to do a funeral. I did the funeral, and it went very well. It was someone from our church, and I remember after the service, I was approached by one of the funeral home directors. He said, I like the way you do your services, and we'd like to be able to use you for other funerals because sometimes we have families that come to us and they don't have a church, and we'd like for you to be able to do those funerals, but do you think you could make them a little less spiritual? I remember, actually, I did not give the deep breath like y'all did there. I remember laughing at the question. And I told him there was probably a Catholic church down the road that could probably assist him. <laughs> that probably wasn't the right thing to say, but that was my response. What they were saying was, can, can we just get a little less Jesus out of you? As it turned out, by the way, they still had me preach a lot of funerals for them, but I still preached Christ crucified, resurrected, and returning. But there was more to their request. You see, one of my fears for the church is that we have become okay with getting just a little more Jesus. Sure, we talk about Christ. By the way, I'm not talking about the pastor here. I'm talking about all of us. We talk about Christ crucified, resurrected and returning. But when it comes down to it, we are good with just a little bit of Jesus. Uh, I'm saved. Yeah, I said a prayer. Yeah, I even go to church. I serve in the church. What a contrast between our little bit of Jesus and that of Peter and the disciples. Remember them? I just read about them. They were the ones who were arrested not once but twice for preaching Jesus. And when told that a little bit of Jesus was all they needed, keep quiet about this, Jesus. You're rocking the boat. They said, we must obey God rather than men. When I was a youth pastor, we had a group come to one of our youth camps just before they hit it big. Their name was DC Talk, and they've since broken up, and they've gone different ways. 
One of the songs that they did was called Jesus Freak. Listen to the lyrics to that song. What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no describing the truth. I know the grammar's wrong there, but you get the point. Oh, how I pray that we will have some Jesus freaks in this church. Individuals who aren't content with just a little bit of Jesus, just enough to be able to look the part. Individuals who smile on Sunday, but live different throughout the week. Individuals who perhaps were good in the eyes of our brothers and sisters, but aren't truly seeking the Lord with all of our hearts. My challenge to you this morning is this. First, I am letting you know that this is the message that I am committed to today. As you come to Trinity, you will hear Christ crucified, resurrected, and returning. But I also ask you to clarify the message to the world around you. Let them see that your life, everything that you say and everything that you do is because you want and need more of Jesus Christ. Just because you went to the altar 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and you got your little bit of Jesus, that is not enough. Let the world know that you need more of him. And know this, your job is not to find what's wrong with everyone else. Your job is to proclaim Jesus crucified, resurrected, and returning. One of the problems with the way the world sees the church is sees the church today is that we have muddied the message. They know what we're against, but they have no idea what we're actually for. I am for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and returning. Let's not just talk about it. Let's live it. My prayer today is that you will be a Jesus freak, so passionately in love with him that nothing can satisfy it. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, we have read your word this morning. We believe that there is power in your word. We believe that within the word of God, we see godly examples of what we ought to be. But I thank you for the disciples that were described here in the book of Acts. I thank you for their hunger and their desire to speak the truth that regardless of what other people say, they were so committed to doing what you had called them to do that they would not be silent. It would have been easier for them to just be like everybody else, to just stay the course and not rock the boat. But they had been called to something great. They had been called to faithfully serve Father, I pray that you would give us that same kind of boldness. I pray that you would give us that same kind of hunger. Lord, I pray that you would change us so that everything that, everything that we find as satisfied would be found in you. Father, I pray today that you would have such a great move of God among your people, just like you did 
through those disciples who would not be silent. Father, I pray that you would use us to usher in your Holy Spirit's revival as we dig into your word, as we allow the word to flow through us into our lives, into our daily actions, into every conversation that we have. Lord, I pray today that this would be more than just talk more than just obedience to the pastor. Lord, I pray today that there would be a hunger within us that could not be satisfied by anything but you. Father, I pray today that you would give us what we need. Father, I thank you for your grace. For too long, we have been content to be like everyone else. May that not be the case today. Lord, I pray for your power today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I do want to add one last thought before we leave. Y'all thought I was done, sorry. Next Sunday, we are going to focus on another element within revival. It's called transformation. We've kind of touched on it briefly. When true biblical revival takes place, transformation will always follow. In fact, remember what I told you last week, revival without transformation is no revival at all. I want and I pray that God would be so real to you today that you would hunger and thirst after him, not so that you'll feel good, but so that God would begin to transform your life. Where sin has remained, it is time for it to be removed. But again, not because the pastor said so but because we are so hungry for more of God that as we experience more of him, change takes place in our lives. I believe instead of us trying to be good people, maybe if we simply sought the Lord with all that we had, we would become the people that reflect his character. That is my prayer for you, and I hope today that you will come back and join us next week as we dig a little bit deeper into this revival. May the Lord bless you as you go and you serve him today.